everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Sharon Butler, a painter and publisher of the art blogazine Two Coats of Paint. And this is a Two Coats of Paint conversation. This past week, Two Coats published several pieces. Jonathan Stevenson contributed two reviews, the first one on Rob Daoud's show at Mackenzie Fine Art. They are not merely nice to look at, he writes. They are also cogent, even urgent, and very much of the moment. Unquote. He also wrote about Jeff Gable's solo show at Spencer Brownstone and Pitches and Scripts, a group show at Jennifer Byng Gallery on the Upper East Side, where Gable has some older drawings on view as well. Stevenson suggests that Gable's scratchy pencil drawings veer towards Ra's chast and beyond to Robert Crumb, and that he is kindred spirit of the cringe comedian smoldering with grim confidence, unquote. The final piece we have uh, this week is an interview with Amy Toludo, the talented producer and amusing host of the popular podcast Pep Talks for Artists. We were curious about Amy's own path in the studio, which has recently moved away from her beautiful award-winning landscape paintings to something much more idiosyncratic and surreal. So check out these pieces along with our selected gallery guides for New York City and the Hudson Valley region at www.tutocoatsofpaint.com. Today, I invited Adam Simon and Lori Fendrick to host a conversation about being not nice in the art world. We wonder if contemporary artists and critics are being too nice about the work being made today. We will have a conversation and then in the second half, bring guests on stage for thoughts and comments. Lori is a professor emerita of fine arts at Hofstra University and a Guggenheim award-winning painter who writes both art criticism and fiction. She is a member of the organization American Abstract Artists and is represented by Lewis Stern Fine Arts in Los Angeles. Lori divides her time between Northeast Connecticut and New York City. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. I appreciate it. Adam Simon is an artist and frequent contributor to Two Coats of Paint Conversations. He's a co-founder and the widely claimed Four Walls Project, which is now archived at the Smithsonian and the Fine Art Adoption Network. And he was affiliated with Studio 10 in Bushwick for many years, and more recently with Osmos Address in the East Village. Adam divides his time between Brooklyn and Catskills. I should say the Catskills, not Catskills. Hi, Adam. Hi, everybody. Hey, Adam. It seems as though the subject, being overly nice at the expense of honesty, has been in the air lately. In an era of community building, zealous gratitude, and identity politics, what has happened to honest opinions? Harsh critique. What happened to the scathing review? What's all this niceness? Um, How did we get here today? Question of niceness is a little bit of a red herring, but um, let me uh, let me begin as I intended to begin, which is just to say that um, I think the idea for this clubhouse uh, conversation came from a conversation that I had with Laurie that that you, Sharon, um, organized where, where two coats of paint got together, which was really a wonderful event. And at that, I, I complimented Laurie for having made what I thought was a provocative statement at a previous Clubhouse talk when she said that she hated open studios. And um, I, I kind of loved it because I thought, well, you know, that's that's a kind of risque thing to say because open studios is where people without galleries get to put their work in front of the public. Um, but um, that led us into a broader conversation about the art world being too nice and everybody being too careful about what, th- what they say. 
stuff like that. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't initially about negative say, but um, but I think we're you know we're in that territory. So um, as far as I know, none of us, neither of you or me, have ever written negative reviews on two coats of. I don't think I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and in fact, I think Sharon going to have to tell us if there's ever been negative reviews on two coats of paint. I can think of one, but um, and uh, he got pushed back, and that was when uh, Curtis Mitchell wrote something. But I think there's a reason for this, and I think it's that there's a difference between professional critics and um, artists who write about art. And I think that um, they have different motives for writing and different requirements. And I think that, um, that you know, uh, official critics, art critics who writing for publications um, have to establish their credibility and a negative review can help with that. If the, if the climate has gotten nicer, it might be because uh, more criticism is being written by artists. They have different writing. I, I think the question of niceness, like I said before, might be a red herring. I, I think that actually it might be more a symptom of something, which is that we're, we're kind of state of um, relativism, kind of like what's happened with politics and ethics, where everybody has their own version of the truth, etc. Um, and that it might make it sort of hard to come up with criteria for establishing what is good or bad, etc. Um, I think I think money became at some point the main criteria in the art world for establishing value and um, that's something we can try to flesh out i could stop there but i could also say you know that there are factors having to do with digitization um the fact that uh things on instagram or uh other platforms is never is a is a kind of diminishment of the experience of looking at art and everything kind of ends up being the same um not because the work is the same but because there's a there's a kind of um uh, general impoverish, impoverishment of the art viewing experience to the extent that it's digital. Um, so these are all things that 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 contribute. Did that answer? You? Uh, Adam, you were breaking up at the end for me, but oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Anyway, just the end. I got most of it. Um, okay, so I was actually overthinking this for three days, like taking my walks and thinking about it, and thinking about it when I did my yoga. Don't do that when you're trying to do yoga. Uh, I. I decided as I thought about it, since I'm older and I can go back further than some of you youngsters, that a lot of this, um, and I do think it's not a red herring. I think there is a lot of basically just thick description going on. As borrow, I'm borrowing that term from literary criticism, meaning people are very interested in the context in which art has been made. Whether and usually it boils down to the identity of the artist as much as they are in in anything else and what the art looks like. But I do think there is a, a root for this, roots for this that in the art world that begin in the 1970s and 80s, namely in the 70s with the explosion of new art forms, which challenged the dominance of painting and sculpture. And Roz Krauss wrote very uh, clearly about this, about this expanded, the set of values from traditional critical methods. So it was you know, gone where this sort of color form, et cetera, et cetera, because there were a lot of things in these new art forms that really weren't about that. And another example I, I was thinking of was Marsha Tucker's show, Bad Painting, in 1978 at the Whitney, because there was just thrown out the whole idea of art progressing toward anything. And it was replaced by this idea of really of 
the freedom, the freedom of the artist. So you can be whatever you want to be and ideas about what's good or bad are flexible and really dependent, again, on the context of the work. So this expansion in the 70s and 80s ended the dominance of ideas about the quality of art being rooted in traditional Western aesthetics ideas about, about things like color and form and design and all that. And it also simultaneously, I think, ended the idea of the preposterous idea, really, of the neutral position of either the artist or the critic, because came what came to the fore was all artists and all critics are making art from a point of view. Well, once you go there, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to identity is what matters the most. I mean, it really wasn't that hard to slide over into making identity, uh, either conscious or unconscious, the the grounds on which art is made. And that that takes away the idea of judging the art, because <laughs> what what are you going to judge? You're going to judge that a person is like a white girl like me from the suburbs? You're going to judge me on that? Or no, you're just going to say, well, that's her point of view. She grew up with that kind of art, and she learned to love abstraction because she's a white girl from the suburbs, or whatever you're going to say. But it did kind of pull the rug out from under the idea that you could make qualitative judgments. And I think that's what we're talking about here, qualitative judgments. But correct me if I'm wrong. No, I, I, I think that you've you've uh, kind of nailed it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I remember quite a long time ago overhearing a, a gallerist talking to a collector saying, um, "You really don't need to know much art theory. You just just need to know what you like." And I think that you know that's. Uh, I, I mean, all these things combined. But I, I think that um, I think that given a vacuum. Like I said, I think money takes over, but um, the question of identity is also, yeah, I think that in the absence of values or, or criteria with which to judge, then um, focusing on who the artist is seems like the place that, that, that the art market has gone. I agree with you about the economics, and I'll, I'll even get more precise about the economics. It's, it's like very hard in the um, sites where art criticism is published, to publish, if you're the editor or the publisher, to publish really negative, a lot of negative criticism, because you've got galleries who are advertising there. Now, why do they want to advertise somewhere where there's a risk that the art show they have put up is going to be trashed for some, whatever reason, even if it's argued very powerfully with a lot of excellent, superb, over-the-top rhetoric and really rooted in facts and this and that and this, it's still, negative is negative and people don't like it. And I think... Um, the other thing I, I really want to talk, make sure we talk about is, I think as a whole, Americans are very anti-foundational um, uh, people. We're anti, uh, we suspect authoritative voices. We don't like them. It's just an American attitude. You don't find that in Europe so much because the Europeans are much more used to, well, they have a history of aristocracies and this country didn't have that. So, a new authoritative voice that's kind of emerged is the voice of somebody using the correct language. And the correct language is a bunch of language that people throw around that really preposterously emerged out of European, <laughs> European continental ph philosophical thought. So all of a sudden we have all these ideas about Foucault and everybody's throwing them around. Like, so you have to use certain language if you want to be cool and have an authoritative voice as a critic. One of the things I've done when I write 
is I eschew all that. I refuse to lose. I can't even use stomach the word artistic practice. I can't, I can't, or, or um, aesthetic production. You know, it's like, what? It's a factory? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, a practice is something that a doctor or a lawyer has. So I have trouble with it. Uh, but those things, that anti-foundational impulse in the American heart also makes people not really interested in the history and sort of roots of things so much. It's sort of like, just they're there to be smashed. And then I just want to throw this last thing in. It's a different topic, kind of. But I do feel that all of us artists who write about art and artists who don't write about art, we're, we're kind of vulnerable. If we're not way up there in this intergalactic realm, we're vulnerable. So we're putting our work out there. It feels like we're putting our lives or ourselves out there. And, and so we do take it very personally, even if somebody writes very well, uh, critical in public, uh, you know, a public forum, something very critical about our work. And that leads to a kind of, what do I want to say, silencing of the person writing about the art, not necessarily complete cowardice, as much as very aware that everybody is vulnerable. That that um, reminds me of uh, when when the three of us were, were talking, having a conversation in preparation of of doing this, I suggested that whoever spoke second should say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And that that would kind of <laughs> set the tone. <laughs> but, but, but then I thought about it and I realized, actually, if I was the one that spoke first and Laurie said that, I would be mortified. I don't want to hear that, you know. So, um, yeah, we're um, uh, nobody wants to be um, – trashed on social media or in you know comments after writing something and and uh, and artists you know don't want to they don't want to get negative reviews but but the the people that that i associate with the negative view people like um robert hughes and hilton kramer um um i in my opinion they never had a whole lot to say to be honest it was it was mostly kind of um dishing and and i have a a sample of what robert hughes wrote about basquiat um a year after he died uh if you want to hear some of that but um more recently uh uh jed pearl wrote something in the new york review of books where he was lamenting the fact that um that abstraction and figuration no longer represented philosophical positions and i I think kind of goes to what you were saying or um that that now they're just like equally viable strategies for to incorporate and they get with for many artists they get they get um used simultaneously so i don't think we're going to go back to uh arguing over which is better abstraction or figuration i don't think we want to go back to that but but he does at least raise the point that they may we may be lacking anything that's worth arguing about. I agree with that. I didn't read that Jed Pearl piece, but um, Hilton Kramer made this point, uh, not Hilton Kramer, I beg your pardon, uh, Irving Sandler made this point several times while he was alive that the the end of polemics, which you know, he was thinking of the abstract expressions, opened up this chasm of of nobody believing in anything anymore. It's like he said, you know, art became something that you did and you thought it looked good and or else you thought it meant something in the political world or the uh, world of uh, helping promote a cause, but it wasn't something that you per se believed in your art, the way, the form of the art anymore. So there was nothing to argue about over Foreman anymore. And he, I think he uh, thought that was terrible for art because that, 
passion about having principles about your art was what drove so many great movements in art. And one thing you can kind of say is, I mean, unless I'm missing something, I don't see a movement going on in art right now. I see a lot of art, tons of art, a great egalitarian spread of art where art is, you know, at all levels is valued in the, in the culture or not valued. The flip of that is that it's not really valued, but you know what I mean? There's like, oh, it's so wonderful. You're making art kind of attitude. Um, but I don't see great uh, passion for the principles of art. And it really is analogous to, to uh, uh, I want to return to this point, it's two impulses um, that we all have. We want to we tell the truth, we do, uh, and we want to do that, but at the same time we want to fit in. And, you know, sloppy part, part of that is we want to be liked. So, you know, how do you fit in but also tell the truth? And so that can be rough. That's a rough thing. You have to be willing to take a lot of arrows if you're going to tell certain truths. And I'm not sure I got those guts. Uh, and actually, I'm not willing to lie down and, you know, be. I don't want to be St. Sebastian. I just don't want to do it. Um, so it's it's like I just, it's the energy for somebody else. I, I think before we finish our this, though, Sharon and Adam, I think we should talk a little like, where could we go moving forward? Because I was thinking about that question, too. Where can we go to move a little into making art writing a little more interesting? Because there's so much tedious description in art writing right now, It's, um, in my opinion. And I think it's, it's getting away from that would be really wonderful. But I don't quite know how to do that. I, I can speak to that. But Sharon, if you want to say something before I... I'm just enjoying long. listening to what you all have to say. And <laughs> okay. The, the, um, thing, the thing is, is that I think that there is this idea now that because work is so self-referential, it is hard to critique. But wouldn't that maybe make critique move to a more formal plane rather than something rooted in ideas or politics? You know, because you can't look at somebody's work if it's very political and say, you're wrong, you got your facts wrong on that. You know, is, is that a, a valid critique? Or But you could say, you could talk about how the materials are used, I suppose, and if the way that the materials are used if it supports the message that the artist is trying to make or not. I think that's, uh, I, I want to jump in and say it would be a first step. A first step would be to call people a little bit more to account for what the art looks like. And now that's tricky territory because, you know, minimal art in the beginning didn't look like anything to people. And Hilton Kramer made great fun, had great fun. You know, with what did he say, the, the thing that he said about the more minimal the art, the more maximum the explanation. It was a famous quotation of his. But I'm a little wary of turning into difficult art having to be look good. Well, it doesn't have to look good. But so there, difficult art has to have a, a profound idea, not just any two-bit fluffy idea. It should have something profound that and does it have to always question what you, you are you always on the line? Do you have to always be on the line? There are things that where you could sort of poke back a little. Why do I always have to be prodded and taught? Because one of the things that's my pet peeve right now is so much artist didactic. That's political or identity art. It's just telling, it's telling me in some kind of illustration way what I'm supposed to think. And I don't know about other people, but I, I rebel at that. But on the other hand, the, the formal the, the the formal criticism is something that um, 
that I kind of tend to rebel against, like in my studio at least. I mean, I, the last time somebody tried to critique my work formally, I, my response was, you know, that, that's fine in art school. Don't do it in my studio because it didn't really, it didn't really fit what he was looking at and anyway um you know i i I think that i think that importantly you know we're talking about um different arenas there's 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 the the arena of of art writing but there's also the studio visit there's also the um there's also the opening and this uh the art opening and there's also social media i mean I, i i've been told that saying anything critical to an artist at their opening is an absolute no no but i i um I've done it uh, more than more than a couple of times in, in order to try to have a conversation because I know that you know at, at my own openings, um, like I actually think that the that the most implicitly critical thing anybody could say to me at my opening is congratulations. You know, if they say congratulations and nothing else, I know they hate the work. Um, so I'd much rather hear somebody uh, say something actually critical. And in fact, um, when I first started showing my work, a friend said to me, oh, I saw that. I saw that painting of yours in that group show and I said, what did you think? And they said, uh, I thought it was the ugliest thing I had ever seen. And I was taken aback. And then, and, and, and then I thought for a second and I said, well, well, was that interesting? And they said, oh yeah, it was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, but that's not criticism, Adam. That's not fair. I mean, because he immediately says it's interesting. What's, what's more hurtful, and I don't think, I think, People have to say congratulations. Now, openings are not, I don't think, a place for conversation. Here, see, I'm going to get really snarky with you. I don't think an opening is a place for a conversation. An opening is a moment of celebration. Artists are like little gophers. They're underground all the time, and everyone says, well, they pop up for an opening. And it's like, that's the time to have wine and celebrate and say, you know, yeah, you're an artist. I'm an artist. We all know what being an artist is like. It's a, you're alone. You're alone with making this art. So I disagree with you about that. And secondly, I think that I, for one, have been the victim of Donald Cuspit writing a very negative review of a show I had, and it hurt. Okay, it hurt. And it took me at least a month to get over it, as in, like, kept thinking about it like was he right this really was he right about it you know you know should i you know re-examine everything about my art it i think that i'm not alone that negative criticism is a very it's very artful business to offer negative criticism very artful and you have to know how to do it in a really good way and one thing being a professor i learned how to give some criticism to students in a good way but they were students. I'm not going to give criticism to artists. It's just like when I go to for a studio visit, I don't offer criticism. I ask questions. I want to find out it's their chance to be a beef eater standing at the side of their work and telling me what it's all about. So I think negative criticism is very risky. It really can hurt. And then there's the other side of it. If you slip and, and say the wrong word, you can be canceled. Well, there's somebody in the audience that I'd like to hear from at some point. That's Saul Ostro, who, um, uh, you know, doesn't write. Uh, he, he's, he's, he, he's not like people that I mentioned earlier that made their reputation writing negative reviews, but he's, he's, he's willing to go there. And, um, and um, I, what I said before was that, you know, I, I'm not interested in it personally because as an artist, it just doesn't, it doesn't interest me to take a position of authority in relation to somebody else's work and say what's good or bad about it. It's just not 
what I'm interested in. When you're an artist and trying to write criticism, is that as I write about it, if I start with having gone to a show and have negative feelings about it, and it usually means that the work is is challenging, and, and the more I write about it, the more I come around to really appreciating the work. So, I mean, it's not that I intend to always write positive reviews, but in somehow you know, thinking more deeply about the work, I always come around to seeing the artist's point of view. Well, I agree with that, Sharon. I think there is also a first obligation that we all have, which is to try to understand the work on its own terms. I don't think that you go in there with your own principles. If you're going to write about art, you, and like, oh, this doesn't fit my principles. So you have to begin. And that is what you're talking about, where you really try to study what's the, what's this art about? And what, what is the, everything from what's the artist say it's about to what are you seeing it's about to any other, you know, I always do like what other people think. I'm, I'm always open to trying to understand the art as deeply as I can. And I think that goes, that's with the territory if you're going to dare to write about art. Right. But I think that the critics didn't have that. Although, you know, people like, um, uh, who was that guy that oh, used to write the bad reviews? Um, oh, um, Hilton Kramer. No, no, no. no, no. Uh, the, from, from Coagula, that guy. Oh, Charlie, uh, Finch? Charlie, Charlie oh, Judd, Finch. Donald Judd is who I'm thinking of. Oh, was Donald, Donald, Judd, oh Donald Judd. No, I don't think he was always writing negative reviews. He was just writing those strange reviews where they were one sentence long at a piece. And you know what I mean? Right. They brought his aesthetic to everything. We have a lot of people in the uh, audience who are, or not a lot, we have a few people in the audience who are suggesting that when they were in graduate school, um, critiques were really hard and that now critiques are not so hard and that they enjoyed the fact that the critiques were hard. Uh, I second that. As a professor who recently retired, I second that. I second that. I know uh, Terry Myers on a Clubhouse talk um, talked about a student coming to to his office and complaining that that the the uh, faculty were cri- criticizing her work so uh, how misguided that opinion was but anyway well you get you develop a little armor if you go through uh, the kind of art education I had at the art Institute sometimes people cried after a critique it was like they were just like had fangs out and but it was like uh, in a, you know I don't want to be like oh I was in the war you know but I do having my last teaching was in 2018 and I thought students had become very uh, in my experience I taught at Pratt in in the last year of teaching and I thought they had become extremely sensitive I'll use that word well I do think critiques are different now than they used to be I think there's much more of a sense of trying to help it's almost like you're a therapist to the student trying to help them like read the tea leaves and figure out where they're going and what they're doing Whereas in the old days, it was more you're challenging them. And good point. Them figure That's it out a good on their point. own. And now it's more like you're like a life coach. No, I, I think you've, you've got a good point there. And I also think um, one of the other things that has worked that I always noticed in conservative critics, who after all, Hilton Kramer was really fun to read. He was the, people used to joke about him and say, he's the one that you would read under your bed covers with a flashlight so no one else knew you were reading him avidly. <laughs> But he was like, he was, he had a, um, a wonderful awareness. And I think um, that was the same of Robert Hughes, two conservative critics of what's the audience that's not fully trained, what, but is informed and intelligent. What is that? What's the audience reaction to this art? He, they both shared that concern with the audience. And I don't think um, 
there's too much of that going on uh, nowadays. It's like you put it out there and the audience, you know, be damned. They can figure it out themselves. Yeah, but they were they were way less insightful. I don't think either of them were that insightful about the about the work and what you know the work was trying to do. Do you want to hear this, um, Robert Hughes on Basquiat? It's kind of amazing. Um, yeah. All right, this is what yeah. Robert Hughes said about Basquiat a, a year after he died. Basquiat never looked like he was turning into a painter of real quality. His importance was merely that of a symptom. It signifies little more than the hysteria of instant reputation that still so grotesquely afflicts American taste. His admirers, his admirers are like a posse of right-to-lifers, adoring the fetus of a talent and rhapsodizing about what a great man it might have become if only it had lived. Nothing about the work, you know, just, I mean, that's just, that was kind of like the tenor, the general tenor of, of, of his criticism. It was sort of like, like, uh, you know, almost like literary. Well, he was like that. But to be fair to him, he wrote columns in Time magazine and they were longer than that. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So that's All taken right. out of context, just here's, pointing it out. Here's Hilton Kramer. And the, the headline is, or the title of this uh, review is, Suffering Saffron Succotash, Those Absurd Gates of Blight on Art. About the bright orange gates that have lately been erected in a defenseless central park in the name of art, there are no neutral opinions. Everyone has either seen or heard about this massive assault on the most beloved of city parks, and everyone has formed some sort of opinion on the worth or worthlessness of this extravagant and somewhat absurd episode in our urban history. My own view is that the gates are nothing less than an unforgivable defacement of a public treasure and everyone responsible for promoting it, including (laughs) our publicity-seeking mayor, should be held accountable not only for supporting bad taste, but for violating public trust. This this brings us to the realm of public art. Public doesn't have any any problem criticizing art. Yeah, I mean, uh, the whole, remember Richard Serra's Tilted Art? That was astonishing because that's the first time I remember a work of public art actually being removed because the public didn't like it. Yeah, we talked about that and 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 I'm st- I'm maintaining the point of view that the removal was the fulfillment of the work and it was maybe subconsciously but at some deep down level it was intended <laughs> by the well, art. Well, that's going too Freudian on me. I think uh, given that uh, Sarah sued I, I saw it as he really was pissed off that his work was removed from the site, from Foley Plaza. But, uh, you know, we're seeing this, not to go deep into it, but we're seeing this right now with the Martin Luther King, contra- uh, uh, Hank Willis uh, Thomas uh, sculpture in Boston that was unveiled last week. And I don't know how many of you have seen The Daily Show, but it's hilarious. But I mean, it's like not for me. I, I would bow out of criticizing that, frankly, because I am a white person and I don't want to be involved in and plenty of disputes are and frank criticism is taking place within the black art community about that piece. What are yeah. what are what are some of the yays and nays? Well, the yays are um, that you know this Martin Luther King and his wife uh, met and fell in love in Boston. And so this was the, a, a proper celebration of their lives. She helped him with his civil rights movement tremendously. And this was a proper celebration of their lives that they were in love. You and know, that this actually, excuse me for a minute, but at the risk of 
making you sound tedious. Can you just describe what it looks like? Oh, well, this depends on the point of view to the sculpture. It's very large. It was $10 million. It's bronze. I have not seen it in person, but I've seen pictures and it's huge. So you can't miss it because the people next to it are very small. And it's a wraparound headless sculpture of of sort of going through. You can permeate it. And it's, it's of two, uh, his arms and her arms wrapped around each other's shoulders. Unfortunately, from some points of view, to some people, it looks a lot like arms holding a penis or arms holding a turd. I'm quoting people who have criticized it. And it, and so it's like, uh, you know, is, is that in the eye of the beholder? Or the, the, the artist is um, standing by what he did. Um, and of course, the commission that chose it and everything are standing by. But even some of Martin Luther King's children loathe it and talked about this um, perspective on it. So you have to go now, look it up yourself. Why do they loathe it? They loathe it because they think that from this point of view, it looks like a dick. Oh. And well, if you go and look at some of the black criticism on it, this is not a white woman talking. I hope I'm not taken out of context here. I'm quoting black critics who have written about it that I've seen on various threads. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I'm bowing out of criticizing it myself. I think there are plenty of bad pieces of public sculpture, and I'm not in the public art business. Well, the the host of the Daily Show, I forget her name, but um, I thought she had a great idea. She said, "White people get it right. They want to. They want to honor somebody. They put him on a horse. Put Martin Luther King on a horse." <laughs> I think that's a that's a great idea. It would be like a. It would be a comment on all of the monumental sculptures that populate the parks and stuff. Right. Um, but I, I thought that I thought that the the critique from the oh, you, I'm sorry, I missed who you were talking about. You were talking about Leslie Jones. Yeah, but I thought that the critique from the African American community had more to do with not actually giving anything about what Martin Luther King accomplished in his life, and 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 that that too. I, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. That's not what, not what well, art does. The, the, the Leslie Jones takedown of the piece included the discussion of, like, you know, the other public sculpture of Martin Luther King that, with the, without any legs. Right. And I think, you know, the idea was this is a man who marched for civil rights. Why no legs? <laughs> you could also say this is a man who marched for civil rights. Why not his head and his legs? You know, and also too much love. He was—he wasn't just all about lovey goosey, uh, soft feelings. He was very, very political about things have to change, folks. Things have to change. Well, I do think it's interesting that the public has no problem chiming in to either criticize or approve, and um, yet artists in a different in a different place. You know, I want to take a quick break here. After I give a brief shout out to some Two Coat sponsors, we'll be taking questions and comments from the audience. And also, we, if you have some but you don't want to come up on stage, you can put them in chat room. Um, perhaps you have a bad review you'd like to share or uh, just click the hand icon at the bottom and we'll bring you up uh, to the stage area. At the Painting Center, Mythos, a group exhibition with artists in the program League at Large at the Art Students League, is on view through January 28th. The show has been guest curated by Clintel Steele. The gallery is located at 547 West 27th Street, Suite 500 in Chelsea. On February 2nd, two solo shows open, Lisa Pressman, Things That Were Never Said, and Chase Cantwell, The Portrait Project. At the New York Studio School, spring 
2023 classes begin January 30th, and there is still time to enroll in part-time courses. They are located at 8 West 8th Street in the Village. The Perch, a creative arts journal with a mental health theme published by Yale Program for Recovery and Community Health and the College of Letters at Wesleyan University, is looking for unpublished submissions of poetry, creative nonfiction, fiction, visual art, music, and academic writing, especially works by scholars written in a style that is accessible to the general public. Substance abuse is the theme for their 2023 issue, and the deadline to submit is February 5th. Please encourage your galleries, nonprofit organizations, art programs, and universities to advertise on Two Coats of Paint. For info, send an email to twocoatsofpaint at gmail.com with advertising in the subject line. you're just entering the room, this is a Two Coats of Paint conversation, and our hosts today are Lori Fendrick and Adam Simon. Did we have any questions? Comments? Oh, Saul's come up to the stage. Hi, Saul. Hi, how are you? is a critic and curator from the New York area. Hi, Saul. And, and in XR Katz's work touches upon, and also the, also the fact that, when, especially in the case of a museum show, you're, you're not necessarily reviewing or discussing individual works you're discussing a concept Katz's in Katz's case I saw the Katz show is literally unraveling about halfway through what what there is of Katz was there were works missing that there were decisions made that I didn't think were in the in Katz's best interests or in in the audience's best interests and I stated that and so what was the response? Critics don't get response. There's no letters to the editor anymore. Oh, uh, we usually get responses on Instagram. The hand people, a handful of people who were interested in it came back to me and said, you know, we're interested because it did have criticism in it. We're, we're interested in the fact that, you know, uh, what I had... I don't give very much feedback in terms of uh, what I write. I have a handful of uh, full of very good friends who who, who supply me th- with that. We have discussions over over what I may or may not have thought, or why I may or may not thought something. Sometimes I find that um, in, in when I've written things that are that you know I never thought of them as negative particularly, but maybe the artist didn't agree with them, and then you know down the road you'll see they'll be somehow responding to the suggestion that you made, which is sort of interesting. Even though you don't hear it right away and nobody contacts you directly, you may see some change in their work or something that addresses something that you might have said. But I guess this is a curatorial choice rather than a... As Laurie was saying and so on, uh, being of of an older generation and so on, it goes back to when the idea Criticism was part of an ongoing debate over values, over standards, over criteria. That it was, it was at best polemical and at worst rhetorical. I, I think they, they pass it because um, a certain status uh, that is, seems unassailable. So for a different perspective, and I think in, in, in your article, you introduced the idea of, of depiction of a certain subset of, of a certain class of people in New York City as a, a, a 
as a as, as an aspect of appreciating the work or, or looking at the work that hadn't really been discussed that much is that oh okay i understand what you're referring to I, yes i also point out that here's 50 here's 50 years of an artist working with the outside world never intrudes upon it and in which all all of the social all the social events that have taken place in that 50 years 60 years of, of of production never put in an appearance. the The only diff- the only thing that happens in Alex Katz's paintings is people grow older. <laughs> the context never changes. I had to laugh at that. That's funny. Take a look at the show. That's you know, it, you know, that's what we get. We get the the young version of of that person in the nineteen sixties, and then we get the two thousand ten version of them. <laughs> it's just making me laugh. <laughs> it is capturing a certain point in time, a certain era with those paintings that you just wouldn't see a painter painting that way now. But I think I, I want to comment that, um, Saul, I really enjoyed your comments. And I think one of the things is that we were listening to somebody who, okay, you were an artist once, but you're now a, 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 a an art critic and a curator. And so you have more, I mean, we we now would say, well, there is no such thing as the neutral voice. But I would say you have more of a neutral voice than the artist uh, critic or the artist who writes. It's a little bit more, to me, a little more authorial and authoritative. Now, I'm not saying I believe I, that therefore makes me believe in anything you say, but I say your distance on things seems to me be to be more than an artist's distance. I may be wrong on that, but it's just a thought. I would, I would agree, and I, you know, it, as I said, coming coming out of the sixties and seventies, uh, to a great extent, it's all about ideas and the ideas behind the work and the ideas of the work and the context in which the work is and it has, you know, it very little in terms of personal, you know, uh, sort of weaned off the notion of the artist's intent. Yeah, long, long ago. So, Saul, what do you think about this idea that there's been a kind of general leveling of the whole, um, the whole field of fine art, where everything has kind of equal value and uh, nothing dominates? Is yeah, it becomes a long, it becomes a long story of like the shift of, away from modernism, the shift away from criticism to theory, the shift from from the notion of you know viewing something at a distance to making it all personal, you know, which follow, basically follows certain social trends, and those people are expected to be more polite than ever before. For me, politeness is a travesty. Well, I also would add it's also following certain political trends where the value of equality, sheer equality, has sort of risen to the top over older notions about balancing equality, freedom, etc. So it's like it's a, we live in a very um, – we live in an age where each person says, my voice is as good as the next person. Who are you to tell me what to do? That kind of thing. It also takes old trends, right? I was going to say if that's, if that's true, then they, then they have to be able to take criticism as well. You would think. <laughs> Hi, Alexi. Alexi, I, I do think. Join the uh, stage. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Lexi. Alexi is um, a uh, former writer and curator and artist. Um, hi, I'm sorry to say that I agree with all of the above, which puts me in danger of entering deeply into the nice category. Um, <laughs> but come on, but, pick a fight. Yeah, well, that's the point in a way is that um, negativity 
is more invigorating, right? That's part of what we're missing is the, is, um, is that in a, in an egalitarian, nice environment, there's a kind of inertia that drags down the overall level of achievement, maybe, right? I think that, I think of, um, you guys mentioned Irving Sandler before, and I, he was so, always so worried about this, it became almost a little tiresome, him always wanting people to write about the crisis of criticism. I, I guess after he died, I found myself thinking, you know, he was totally right. But I, my question to you guys would be, I have several, but the, the first one, in terms of what I, I, Saul was totally right that most of what we get now is our writing or our journalism, and, and there isn't really very much art criticism that, in a real sense. But what is there like if you could think of things that um meaningful are meaningfully unnice um in in the last few years or voices that you value for being willing to be candid and uh kind of vulnerably out um uh out of the nice uh sphere can you can you guys come up with any examples or or favorite examples recently? Well, I, I'm going to plunge in and say that um, uh, Seth Rodney at Hyperallergic has piqued my interest. Uh-huh. I think he, I mean, he has some parts that I can't stand. He's one of those aesthetic production guys. But uh, like I said, it's a pet peeve of mine. But I think he has put himself out there, uh, a black guy as a, in a high-level editorial position, willing to say some things that maybe aren't not all that nice that are con- that seem intelligent and constructive he's a really good writer i thought of him too because he did a john's takedown at least briefly that was startling jasper john's i mean yeah yeah can you describe that you know all i i guess all i saw was uh, kind of wasn't in a way it wasn't criticism either but it was he, a brief thing on instagram where he just said he thought it was like jasper john's was a terrible artist which, you know, is, I mean, I'm a kind of John's fan, so I couldn't disagree more, but it was, it was kind of foolhardy, brave, you know, mixture of, he, I just thought he put himself out there in what John's is like the center of kind of the canonical valued art of the last 60 years. So I like somebody who's willing to say no. Right. Seth is a big believer in saying things out loud. Don't, don't tell people something in private that should be said publicly. Yeah. Or that <laughs> would be helpful to be said publicly. And I think as a as a black critic in a way you have um you have more freedom and I in a way I would expect that maybe black critics are going to be, you know, especially powerful voices because of that in the next years, right? Mm-hmm. Um Kathy Quinlan Adam, you pointed out Kathy Quinlan's um post on talking pictures recently. Yeah, if you want to where she was saying, well, well, can you tell, tell us what that Oh, no, I was about? just going to say, if you want to, if you want to see um, Kathy's article on criticism, um, you have to go to talkingpicturesblog.com. It's, if you just Google pictures, you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff. But talkingpicturesblog.com is uh, a kind of wonderful blog. And um, Kathy is a very opinionated writer and, and is, is, has no problem putting her opinions out there. I often disagree with her opinions. Uh, you know, we're good friends, and uh, we often disagree. And, and I feel like um, what she was writing about in this article on criticism um, 
is mostly predicated on the idea of of quality as something immediately or, or, or at least decipherable and um i have uh, i'm less uh, certain about that than she is uh and it, it kind of goes back to saul's point about how you know this criticism is not the same as about art um so that taking an authoritarian an authoritarian an authoritarian position on art saying that you know can actually say what is good and what is bad is is a position that um i don't think very many artists are going to go there honestly that write about art well that was the position uh clement greenberg took all the time and he would go so far as to say you, you better be able to point out a good jackson pollock as opposed to a bad jackson pollock you know he was like he was like really a, a, that way and, it, and you know he wrote some wonderful wonderful essays. Um, but I don't think anyone wants to return to that kind of position. I do think sometimes we criticize a critic for taking that kind of rhetorical stance. I don't think they ever seriously mean I'm king of judging art. But one of the things I always uh, taught my when I was a teacher, a professor, I always had my students read an 18th century essay by David Hume called the, of the standard of taste. And I, one of the main takeaways from that, I mean, there's a lot of things to look at that in that essay for. It's not that long. But one of the main takeaways was that if you look at the long run of, of art, it's amazing how consistent really art is in terms of this is of quality over the generations, over the centuries, compared to, say, science, which in the immediate sense has always got all this authority, but breakdowns in science occur all along the way. So I think it's kind of an, an interesting thing to think, yeah, right, judging quality right away is kind of a difficult, don't go there too much or only a little bit. But I go there when I look at something. I mean, I walk in a gallery and I think, uh, you know, sometimes, not all the time, there are lots of exhibitions that don't involve this, but sometimes I think this is just really, the, the word wouldn't come to mind, I don't use it, but I'm thinking this is this is of quality, okay? I, somewhere in me, I'm feeling that. So, uh, you know, I think it's still around, but the Q word just isn't used anymore. To get back to what Alexi was saying about Seth, there was a comment in the discussion, uh, Shima Starr was saying, we're asking, are we at the stage that white folks are scared of the, of cancel culture? Whereas maybe Alexi Seff, uh doesn't have those worries? Or what do you think? Well, of course, um, one is a little hesitant to even weigh in on that. <laughs> um, but I, I said my piece, I feel like the, the pressures of this political moment um, at least hopefully can be benefit some people and give them the freedom to speak with less qualification. And whoever those people are, let them talk. Right. I remember Seth did write an essay when he left Hyperallergic saying that he was getting some blowback from people in the black community when he, you know, criticized uh, black artist work because it was it wasn't it wasn't helpful to anyone's careers to have negative reviews. It's not, but it's not necessarily harmful. I mean, in the long run, it's not. I don't, it's not like the movie. It's a negative review of a, well, even a, a theater can be shut down if it's a negative review. Movies also count on positive reviews. And I think food, my God, food critics can shut down a whole <laughs> restaurant. So art isn't really like that, I don't think so much. But um, in the high end, it probably is. I, I don't know. I don't know how it all works, but 
uh, young artists, I think, can be hampered probably more than older artists. I mean, Alex Katz, soul can write what he wants. Alex Katz is still in the galactic atmosphere somewhere. I, I just said, before, before this starts winding down, there's, there's one arena that we haven't really delved into, and I'm wondering if there are people in the audience that want to speak to it, and that's uh, academia. I have I have heard, I'm, I'm not teaching, but I've heard from people that do that they have to be very careful about um, they criticism of students' work. Is, is that true? Peter Dudek has just joined us, and he is a longtime um, faculty member, um, part-time faculty member at uh, School of Visual Arts and Hunter, and might have an opinion about that. Hi, Peter. Also a sculptor, I should say. Well, if anyone else wants to jump in here while Peter's... I was tempted just to say as a parenthetical from our earlier conversation about cats and niceness that the one of the strange pleasures of the cats show or of cats generally is that it's nice subject matter, but there's a kind of abrasiveness in the delivery. And that that combination, I think, is part of the magic of cats, feeling like that there's something kind of almost a kind of affrontive, insolent underwhelming um, quality to his execution that prevents the paintings from feeling like they ought to, like just decorative, sweet color landscape or portrait. Yeah, like he's he knows there's a problem with it. I just figured out how to... Uh, uh, hi, Peter. <coughs> yeah, Welcome. I have to. Right. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, I'd like to comment as someone who does not read a lot of reviews. You know, I think it's... Uh, danger to read too many reviews just like it's a danger to see too many shows so as someone who does not <laughs> read a lot of reviews uh, a couple of things well, f- well first of all the, the, you asked about academia and, and yes it is uh, a delicate line in uh, criticizing uh, students I, I find in general uh, students are uh, treated uh, rather uh, politely whereas you know when I was in uh, school. It, the, the faculty had a, a right to be indifferent. You know, if they didn't want to talk about your work, they would just say that. You know, and, and people were often stunned by it, students. Uh, whereas now it seems like, you know, because they're paying tuition, they're owed a certain kind of uh, response, uh, encouragement, uh, etc. Et uh, so the, the economics, perhaps of education has, has altered uh, student expectations. And, and I think faculty have responded uh, in a way that the students want. Um, also, perhaps, uh, you know, artists of my generation, they, we went through uh, undergrad and grad experiencing, experiencing that indifference and, and perhaps were more sensitive, say, to what a, a student would like or even deserve, you know. I'd like to comment about the Jasper Johns thing, too, because soon the uh, post, uh, uh, the negative post about Johns was related to the uh, retrospective at the Whitney. That, yeah. was, that was the second terrible retrospective that the Whitney gave Johns. Uh, they just don't know how to handle Johns. The modern gave an amazing retrospective of John's that really showed with when he walked into the first room even it really showed John's importance when he walked into Whitney it was as if oh here's Jasper John's as a printmaker it was 
totally absurd. Mm. You know, I do have some comments here from the room chat. Audrey Stone says she was asked to do a Zoom with, with students at her alma mater and told it wasn't like when she was a student and she was to respond positively all around. <laughs> <laughs> and then Suzanne Jolson says she was interested in Lori saying how sensitive students were in 2018, which was, exactly, was, it, which was exacerbated by COVID. And she said, we learned how to be useful. I think that's true. Yeah. Not gratuitously critical. Well, I mean, going forward, I think the big, it's too abstract to put it this way, but somehow we have to ask what would a genuine democratic culture be like? Does it really require each and every voice be heard and flattered and honored? Or is it, is, is a genuine democratic culture have room for breaking into that and and criticizing some voices and so and we're, we're kind of caught right now in this valuing the each and every voice you know individually and knowing somehow that each and every voice isn't equal so it's a it's a it's a tension there right yeah hey elizabeth cottage has joined us elizabeth was uh is an artist and was a longtime faculty member down in florida hi elizabeth Yes, I also pressed this button accidentally, not because I'm not following, but just because it's so rich and multi-layered, I don't even know where to start. And I really don't. Um, I think we're making the transition, obviously, you know, trying to figure out how we can be a truly democratic society. And I think we just don't know how. And I think there's too many Jasper Johns shows. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a place to start. And then the, the Hank Willis Thompson Martin Luther King sculpture is a very interesting development. Apples and oranges with museum shows and public sculpture, but it's very interesting that the response to it is so critical. And I suppose you could make you could make all sorts of arguments for that. I suppose from a legislative point, it would be very difficult. Um, you know, they're going to have to weather that storm. The people who commissioned it, the city of Boston, whatever, they're going to weather that storm and, and maybe John's is better behaved. <laughs> so administratively, it's just it's just easier to go the status quo in some ways. And I think we're fighting that with inclusivity and then inclusivity by necessity will change the composition of the administration. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm just reflecting my views. But Absolutely. it makes criticism very complicated and almost impossible. Well, I would say that makes public criticism very difficult. Yeah. Oh, well, then that goes back to Shima's question, doesn't it? I find it interesting what you said earlier, Sharon, about, you know, people in the public are willing to, like, come out from behind the woodwork to express their opinion about the Boston Martin Luther King sculpture, but artists are, like, timid. <laughs> it's like, what? And yet, I find something interesting, like, if you go to a dinner party and you start talking art, people will start to get pretty impassioned about what they like and why, and there'll be arguments over things that are going on in said artist's work that I find oftentimes very like lively, but go to any public place with them and they're going to be more timid. So there is something about this. There's an insidious sort of tyranny of, of the majority of position uh, in the art world that people are afraid of, afraid of violating. And I'm a, I'm a tried and true liberal, but one thing I'll give conservative critics, critics credit for is they just go blather on and they seem to be like, you know, they'll just go, attacking everything you know that they see and uh so that kind of makes me laugh i don't i don't think it's artists being timid i i think that something that that started a very long time ago was artists not wanting to burn bridges that 
that uh, you know, never knowing if somebody that you might that might feel insulted by you is could turn out to be somebody that could help you on a panel or whatever. So they're timid and calculating at the same time. You're saying <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that is maybe that's we're all like that. I, I just know that it is interesting what Sharon said. Like the public is out there and artists aren't. So what's that about? You know, we tried to get at it a little bit here today, but sure, it's not easy to grasp it. Yeah. Well, part of the issue in this one example is that, you know, we know that we're not going to weigh in on a sculpture we haven't been to see in person, right? And I'm, I'm just, meaning the MLK sculpture in Boston, I'm not going to weigh in because I could imagine it very different ways. And But I just wonder, and I, I should know, but I don't, have there been um, art art critical as opposed to public uh, takedowns or negative uh, pieces about that sculpture? Uh, I believe there is something in the Washington Post, but not um, Sebastian Smee, but I think there is something in the Washington Post, but I'm not sure. Okay, thanks for mentioning it. Well, you know, uh, our time is running out. Can I, uh, can I throw in one, a little pitch that years ago, David Cohen put together, maybe some of you remember this, a party centered on a bunch of artists and critics reading Oscar Wilde's The Critic as Artist, which is amazingly relevant. I um, I was kind of shocked at how how much it points out our presumption that criticism and creativity are kind of somehow different things. It collapses them very persuasively. Interesting. All right. Mentioning Dave art critical, um, that is one venue where you would hear a lot of negative shows in, in a public setting. Now that you mention it, Alexa. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, I think it's less active now, um, or maybe even paused. Does anybody know? I think it's paused, but I don't really know. <clears throat> was that before? Did they always uh-huh. record that, or was it? Is that a new thing that they record it and have it online? Because I do think it makes a difference when you're participating in something, whether it's being videotaped or recorded, or whether it's just a conversation. Yeah, I think that the the uh, social media and the wide access to anything that's ever said maybe makes people a little bit more protective and right, guarded right. about what they'll say. All right. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining, Adam and Lori. Thank you so much for hosting today. And thanks to everyone who came out and listened and joined in. Thanks to um, Saul Ostro, Alexi Wirth, Peter Dudek, Elizabeth Condon, and people who left the comments in the in the chat room. Oh, I see Franklin Einsbrook has said, Art Critical went inactive unfortunately so there's an answer to that question about those panel discussions Um, if you want to hear the conversation again it will be available in podcast format later today and on most of the podcast apps Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and so forth so thanks everyone see you next time thank you Sharon thank you everybody thank you Adam, thank you Lori, Alexi, Saul etc thanks to everybody Have a good day. (laughs) Bye. This has been a Two Coats of Paint conversation. 